Hi, I'm Deanna Robbins. And I'm Christy North. Welcome to Pieces of a Woman podcast, where we explore all the pieces that make up a woman, mind, body, and soul. We are two everyday women who have survived, thrived, been defeated, humbled, and spent our lives committed to embracing all complexities of being a woman. This podcast is dedicated to all women, all women searching for real conversations. We are going to be exploring everything from sexuality, aging, menopause, physical and mental health, spirituality, marriage, divorce, and blended families. Everything is on the table, except politics. Every episode will be committed to engaging conversations that will include interviews with influential women, leaders, healers, authors, and good friends. Thank you for taking this journey with us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Pieces of a Woman podcast. So in this episode, Deanna and I sit down with two mothers that have parented addiction. Yeah. We first visit with Sheridan Cannon. She comes in so brave and open with her story about her son who had an addiction from a very early age. And she talks through what she's learned as a mother, what that did to her family, how that impacted her relationship with her son, her husband, and her other children. And truly, I mean, don't you feel, Christy, like it's like a nightmare of her, what she went through, what she was trying to deal with, and her pulling at her heart as a mother, and then dealing with her other children and her husband and just everything, and the community even. I mean, it's a it's a pretty impactful story. Well, you know, the shame that goes along with it and how she managed through that. So I just have nothing but respect for her and the fact that she was here to share her story so that we could, you know, help other parents that may be struggling with this. Yeah, and fighting, fighting for your family and fighting for your son. And then in the second half of this episode, we are going to hear from a beautiful woman, Kathy Nay, who unfortunately lost her daughter to an overdose. And just the real reality of what's happening in our in our communities with, with drug addiction. Yeah, Kathy brings um, another perspective. Uh, her story is a little different than Sh- um, Sheridan's, but she's she brings some good insight with you know a little bit of what she knew with her daughter but also what she's doing today um, and the fight that she is fighting um, in honor of her daughter well we are glad you are here with us and we just want to dive in let's do it tell us about yourself Sheridan I am Sheridan Cannon I have been in real estate for 20 some odd years married to a real estate agent as well How many kids do you have? We have five between the two of us. So you're a blended family. Mm -hmm. I had two, he had one, and then we had twins together. Okay, so tell us um, the ages of your kids and their names. Cade is the oldest. Um, He's 32. And then Kenzie, these are both my kids. Cade and Kenzie is 29. And Gary's daughter, Bree, is also, she turns 30 in October, so she's 29 also. Um, and then the twins just turned 20. Oh my gosh, they're 20. I know. <laughs> I know. So we're going to talk about I'm Kate. Old. Okay. And we would love if you could just take us back um, and share with us some stories um, in his early years and then just kind of share your journey through the last 
what would it be for him? 20 oh. years or what does that look like? It would be, he raced motocross, gosh, and he probably was in seventh, eighth grade. But I remember when he was about 15 is when he started breaking bones, crashing and, you know, breaking some bones, doing some damage. And um, each trip to the ER, you know, they wrap him up and send him home with pain pills. Um, and the, the one where he really, the first time he broke his collarbone, we were in Mesquite and the the ER was just chock full of it was a big race that weekend and it was just, we waited for hours and hours and they basically just said that you know yeah he broke his collarbone nothing we can do and you know sent him off with a bunch of pain pills so Kate sounds like he was a very adventurous yes like he, motocross what else did he do was he always like that growing up mm-hmm he always wanted to which is really weird because it's not in you know clearly me and his dad were divorced and his dad wasn't into motocross I he it was his friends you know the group of friends that at a very young age um just they all had dirt bikes and and we got him a dirt bike and then it just got into real racing and and his passion mm -hmm, yeah we'd load up the fifth wheel every weekend and off to the races wow so he raced three of the four weekends every month a lot yeah and the whole family's involved right at that point uh, do you know at that point really no it oh, was okay. Gary really didn't have any interest in it and neither did the other kids yeah. he was the oldest so it was usually me and him and a couple of his friends oh wow you know we we'd just pack up the fifth wheel and go you know yeah so tell us about the relationship you and Kate have early in um we've always been really close you know he was my first and um very um open you know um discussed you know lots of things I mean I I don't want to say it was typical because I don't know really what typical is you know um but he also you know I was a single mom very early you know Cade was three and a half and Kenzie wasn't even one yet you know when I got divorced so um and I moved down here from Logan and basically was just it was just I I, I had no family I didn't know anybody yeah. really wow. just three of you. so yeah yeah so um I you know looking back I there's always feelings of guilt of you know maybe if I wouldn't have worked so much and if I would have been home more and you know but we don't choose our our kids paths and make their choices for them so but we do the best we can with yeah we know yeah, so so you're saying, so where this started is his accidents going home with pain pills. Mm-hmm. It did start with pain pills, okay. for sure. And he was about 15. When it got really bad and I knew that he had a problem was right around the age of 15. It started probably 13 or 14 maybe, you know, but I, I knew there was a problem at 15. How did you know? How did you first realize there was a problem? He kept wanting more pills you know um he broke his collarbone two or three times you know and then um he broke his ankle he broke several bones and it was almost I don't want to say he tried to break bones but 
He, he was re- always really anxious to get the pain pills. Huh. And how did it evolve from there? Or do you know? What? Yeah, his, his best friend who, you know, we raced with uh, all, all through his adolescence and into high school, um, he, of course, broke lots of bones too. And it, there, was, there was just a group of them, about five or six kids that, and some knew, and a couple of his friends you know, had told me, hey, I think, you know, oh, Kate really? and Jeremy have a problem. So they came and told you. Yeah. Which is pretty brave on their part. Yeah. I mean, kind of hinted as such. Yeah. You know? Um, and it was interesting because I was getting some feedback, too, from the school, you know, of... Um, Gosh, I, I don't want to say druggies, but you know how we, right. we, the druggies of the school. There's always druggies of the school. Right, yeah. You know, and come to find out, yeah, Cade was ringleader. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so how was he getting the product? How was he, he was getting them from a doctor in Utah County. So a doctor supplying a minor. And that doctor's been on the news. He's okay. no longer a doctor. Okay. But, yeah, he would supply Cade with, you know. So just prescriptions. 1,500 pills at a time. And, you know, an Oxycontin on the streets is 80 bucks, you know, and Cade was getting them for 50 or 60. At that time, he was dealing. As it got into, you know, his probably his junior year in high school, Junior, senior year. What were you junior. seeing with him as far as his personality? And I mean, I can imagine that you saw a shift with him. And how was he being with the family dynamic during that time frame? He was really good. You know, some people, when they're high, you know it. At You know, it got to a point where he was so good that you didn't know. He was a functioning addict. Wow. You know, um, until, you know, when he got tired of dealing um, and you can get a, you know, Oxycontin, it's the same as heroin, you know. They're opioids and it's the same thing. So you can buy a pill for 60 bucks or a balloon for 30, you know. So that's how he shifted to heroin. Um, Just couldn't afford the pills anymore. Wow. So was yeah. he, so a balloon, you're shooting, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I'm trying to think what age he was when he started to get in trouble with the law. Um, and when he got into heroin, I, 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 like I said, he was a functioning addict. But heroin and, you know, the pain pills, he slept a lot. Okay. Um where the heroin was, um, well, knowing now what I know, you, you when you take an opioid, that's a downer, you know, and he would need an upper because you can't come down, you know, he, so he'd need an upper, so they would do speed balls, which is heroin, and then when you're coming down off that, you got to do cocaine, you know, to bring you back. To bring you back. Do, yeah. you, do you, if you look back, can you pinpoint a time where you recognize that there was a shift with him from the pills to heroin do you know when that happened yes 
um, because that's when things started disappearing, you know. He basically robbed us blind, you know, and it's interesting because uh, one of his best friends, his dad, also somewhat knew what was going on, but was also very, um, what's, the, what's the word? Well, you, you almost don't want to believe that your child can Oh, watch. yeah. I mean, I think that's the battle Some as of the parent. Mm-hmm. You can see it in other kids easier than you can see it in your own. Yeah. I for sure. Denial for sure. Yeah. Like Christy said, we just don't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. So did you start seeing a physical difference in him? Um, so you talked about stuff missing. So what kind of things did he take? Obviously to sell, so he uh-huh. could buy the drugs. Anything that you could take to a pawn shop. All my jewelry. Oh, wow. He took all my jewelry but my wedding ring. He never took my wedding ring. Wow. Um, uh, tools, you know, um, electronics. Um, stuff like that. So that's a huge wake-up call. Did it take a? Did it take time to realize stuff was missing, or did you know right away, or did you go through a denial period of? Oh, for sure, I did. Did you really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and maybe defending him to some level. Uh, totally, especially with Gary. Yeah. You know, that was it. Really played a toll on my marriage for sure because you know. Gary wasn't, or I mean, Cade wasn't Gary's son, you know, and here he is robbing us blind. And, oh, I would make excuses all the time. Oh, wow. Well, Or I even hide it. I would even go to the pawn shop and try to buy it back before Gary found out. Oh, my gosh, Sheridan. Yeah. So, meanwhile, you're being, I mean, you're just, I can't imagine what you must have been feeling through that period. You're afraid for your child. You're angry at your child. So much anger. Yeah. Talk about that. I, I oh. Anger because of the, of course, the, um, this, the theft and, you know, what he was doing, not on purpose, but, you know, to my marriage, you know. Um, it affects every single family member. Like, oh, you know, you have one person, but it ripples mm-hmm. the ripple. Yeah, and he was the everything. oldest, and you know, I. Yeah, he was the oldest. I had no practice. I mean, not that you want practice with you know having an addict in any of your kids, but I, I, I really, I, I, I was at a loss. You didn't know what to do. Mm-mm. No, and in talking to other parents, you know, I, you know, I definitely was. Um, is it codependent? Is that the word? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. If you, you know, look that word up in the dictionary, there would be a picture of me, for sure. I was in denial, and I was totally helping him. Without realizing. Yeah. I made excuses, you know, it's not his fault, it's not his choice, you know. And there at the end... Um, you know, and educating myself and talking to doctors, addiction doctors and specialists and that, you know, um, it really, it really is an illness. And I think if I were to give any advice at all to parents who might be going through that is to educate, educate yourself on addiction. Do you, do you feel like there was a point in that time frame that you were going through that, um, that you hit it in terms of, um, you know, I look at where I am today with my stories, and I'm 
so much more open about my kids, whether it's what they're doing well, and I'm also including what they're not doing well, because I think that I gain so much more by the people that I can talk to to share their stories where I feel like, okay, you know, how do I handle this? Did you, was that missing during that time frame? Do you feel like you had that support or was that oh, no. kind of missing for you? Totally missing for me. Um, and especially, you know, with the twins as they were growing up, you know, it, word gets out, you know, and my neighbors that knew that, um, I had, my son was an addict. They wouldn't let their kids play with my kids. Yeah. It becomes more of a, and I wonder if this happens more often than not. I dealt with some, a small amount of what you're talking about on a smaller scale, because I think the most fascinating thing is how much you love your children. You love them unconditionally, but you hate what they're doing and their choices that they're making Mm -hmm. because you can't help but not be affected by it. But you became, I mean, you didn't just sit back. So you, there may have been a time you were codependent, but it sounds like it shifted for you. When did you start getting more proactive? Because you said you were seeking help. You were seeking advice. Where do you go? (laughs) Do you know... Uh, we put him in, well, we put him through five rehabs. Oh, my gosh. You know, of which only one he actually finished, and that was out of state. Um, but he fled from the others. Um, I, I And I had him, there was one doctor that um, sat me down, and I just said, explain to me, you know, help me understand how this is for him. You know, I mean, as a parent, we, we, we just say, you know, why can't you just stop? You know, so many people said that to me, including my parents. You know, my dad was just, he could not understand why Cade couldn't just wake up one day and say, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I'm wrecking my family. I'm wrecking myself, you know, and just not do it anymore. Um, but heroin especially is, it, this doctor described it to me as, uh, picture this mama gazelle and her baby and they're drinking water out of you know the lake and up comes this alligator and eats the baby you know and you're like what the crap that's awful you know blah 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 but all that alligator knew was to survive that's how it is for an addict wow it's just survival and and he said look at that as a mom and you would do anything to keep your baby alive. You know, survival is just survival. You know, that's, you would do, you'd rob a bank, you'd rob a grocery store, you'd, you know, do whatever you had to keep your child alive. You know, that's how powerful addiction is to the addict. It's just survival. It's not, oh, I'm hurting my family and, you know, this is wrong and bad, blah, blah, blah. It's survival, just like, we need water to, and yeah. food to survive. So how, what was your darkest point for you? Oh. I mean, you're trying to save your family, keep your family together, keep your marriage together, and you want your son to stay alive and be healthy. What was your darkest point? My darkest point, there were several dark points. I remember just sitting in my closet in the dark, just sobbing, you know, um, and I finally got to the point where it was, it was so bad, and I knew it was either my marriage, something had to give, you know. He had already started getting in trouble with the law, 
And I had a friend tell me once, he needs to be in jail. And I remember thinking, oh no, he's not a criminal. You know, he has a problem, but he's not a criminal. He doesn't belong in jail. You know, but that's exactly where he belonged. Really? Yeah, so I, and he had gotten, I, he had gotten caught with like pot and, and there was, he had at one time got caught with paraphernalia as well, which was a misdemeanor. And he did the plea in advance and failed that miserably, you know, because he had to go test and that, and he failed out of that. Um, so he was on the run for the last probably three years that he lived at home um, and had been in and out of jail, especially that last two years he had been in and out of jail, the equivalent of, well, when it was all said and done, he was in jail for the equivalent of a year in a three-year span. Wow. Um, but when I finally realized, and it wasn't until, you know, my husband wouldn't let him on our property. He booted him out of the house, and he said he can't step foot on our property. I remember sneaking corn dogs and chicken nuggets out in the back. We lived by a canal, you know, and I would take him out by the canal bank and leave him there. Oh, sure. And, hoped, and I snuck a a pillow, and a sleeping bag. But for six weeks, almost six weeks, he slept in the park and wherever he could, you know, nowhere. And how old was he at this time? At this time, he was probably 19 or 19, because he was an adult at this time. Yeah. So I couldn't, you know, where he was an adult... So this is several years, you know, yeah. in, in the making at this time because it, it started getting bad, like I say, when he was about 15. So I want to say he was probably 18-ish or 19 at, okay. the, at the time. So are there any kind of support groups out there for parents? I mean, seriously, I feel like you're kind of stuck in how do you deal with this? How do you not want to protect your child? But you're, But I understand Gary's point of... You're afraid to let him on your premise. What's he, how was his siblings? How did he? How was the relationship with all of them through all this? Really, it was. He was never angry or violent, or that just wasn't ever in his nature. Yeah, you know. And even the drugs didn't make him that way. You know, all the kids loved him. You know, yeah, and they were good. sad when he didn't live with us anymore. They were sad when he went to jail. They, you know, um, yeah, he, he had a, the kids had a great relationship. Now, I, I feel like I kind of, I, at, at a point, I was so consumed with Cade and keeping him alive that I kind of let my other kids, especially Kenzie, you know, fall through the cracks. I feel like I let Bree down and that I never took time to build that relationship you know yeah because I was so consumed with Kate and keeping him alive well and to navigate you know the jail and um I'm listening to you talk about taking food out to him and him sleeping in a park and my heart breaks and it's not even at the level as what I'm sure you were experiencing to know that your child is out there and maybe there was some form of 
comfort, for lack of a better word, when he was in jail because you knew he was probably, I mean, he was sober and he was alive and he had a roof over his head and all of that brought its level of sanity through all of that. For sure. I, I got to a point where I, I had a couple of friends that were cops and we even had a, an officer in the family on Gary's side that had, you know, it was known, don't you ever throw my name out there, don't, you know, for any favors or anything, but it got to a point where I had to get him arrested for that very reason, you know, because knowing that he was safe, he was alive, he had a roof over his head and was getting fed. Yeah. You know. So you kept fighting. I mean, you said you put him through five programs, which mm-hmm. those aren't cheap. No. And I mean, and he he left through four of them, you said, right? Mm-hmm. He only stuck through one, which was out of state. Why did that one make the difference? Because he was in a place he didn't know where to flee to? Or yeah. is that why? Yeah. Okay. There were no triggers. You know, there he had triggers throughout the whole valley, you know, um, that he's like, I can't be there mom you know that's a trigger for me and um so the one he did finish he went to Arizona um and he ended up staying there for about nine months after but then slipped right back in and and every time an addict is clean and then goes back it's worse than it was before they started and the risk is higher because oh, their body yes. is clear. Yes. And that's usually when they, you know, when they OD because they think they can pick up where they left off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's usually, I mean, we, I remember we went to three or four of his friends' funerals. Oh, my god. And one of them with kids. Really? Yeah. So they still go into their adult life. Yes. And can still be an addict and function. Like you said, they can be high-functioning addicts. Yeah. I never really thought about somebody who, it's true, it's that mental um, perception that if you're doing heroin, you cannot be totally functioning, or there's got to be physical signs that you're right. an addict, and that's not the case. That, not with heroin. Okay. It's not. I mean, he lost a lot of weight. When I picked him up, though, after he had been um, on the streets, you know, and I hadn't seen him for... It was probably five, five and a half weeks, and I picked him up. I didn't even recognize him. And I had taken him into jail, into the jail, um, and he weighed 147 pounds that day I took him in. Did Kate ever come to you and say, I can't do this anymore? Oh, yes. He would just sob and just say, Mom, I don't, nobody wants to quit more than I do. I, I can't. What was his rock bottom? I always thought that it would be jail. You know, when I finally wrapped my brain around that, that yes, he does belong in jail, I thought that would be his rock bottom because, you know, jail. Yeah. Yeah. No, that wasn't. Um, And when it's all said and done, we had this conversation. um, I'm like, what was it for you? You know, and he found, the day he found out he was going to be a dad, um, his dad was also, is still an addict. And he always said, in the back of my mind, I always knew the one thing that could trump heroin, and that was being a dad. Really? 
And so it wasn't necessarily a rock bottom for him. It was an inspiration to be more. Yep. And yeah, so, and that wasn't a decision that I, I mean, I had nothing to do with that. That was him. You know, I have parents ask me all the time, well, what'd you do? You know, how did you get him to his, you know, what was his rock bottom? What'd you do to get him to his rock bottom? I didn't do anything. I tried to. So we're talking about Cade today, and he has broken that from his life, and it was him being a dad that changed it for him. Mm-hmm. So when was that? How long ago was that? His oldest just turned um, eight. So that was, what, eight and a half years ago that he, you know, or so, roughly that he, when he found out he was going to be a dad. And he was still running from drug court, you know, running from the law then. He had been kicked out twice. And at that time, I got very familiar with the drug court system. They all knew me by name. They know, you know, knew who I was and who Cade was and, and um, when, when he found out he was going to be a dad, he called one of his, um, I can't remember what they're called, they're a police officer that, like when Cade was living in the house, he would have to come and inspect our house and his room just at random times, um, which when he would come, we would find balloons all over the place. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but he, and he had told me, he says, you know, I've been doing this for 17 years at that time. And he said, I don't know what it is about him, but there's just something about him. This is the police officer mm-hmm. that Meaning was coming that. to your house. Meaning that he, he just felt like he, it wasn't like all the other one, the other kids that, he couldn't really explain it. it. It was there was something different about Kate that he felt connected to. Yes, was it his parole officer? Is that what you're saying? He, it parole? would be kind of like a parole officer, but he he was his yeah kind of it wasn't parole, but maybe probation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I got to know him, you know, fairly well too. Um, but that day that Kate found out he was going to be a dad. You know, he had turned himself in before, and it didn't do anything, you know, with the courts. They just really? took him in. It, yep. Okay. It, it did nothing. And he did, I think, two or three months at that time, you know, and got out and did good for a while again, yeah. and then was right back into it. So this time, he called that officer, and he said, yeah, you meet me at the village inn or whatever. And then they went to the station, and he wrote an email to the judge. You know, and said, hey, I've got him, and he's turning himself in, you know. Because last time, it just he turned himself into the jail. Yeah. And it just, nobody cared. Yeah. You know. Um, and this guy really, he, he sent the email to the judge. And then, I'll never forget sitting in the back of that courtroom um, that day when he saw the judge. And, you know, his file's three inches thick. And, and he said, I, I know. He got up there, and he said, I know I belong at the point of the mountain you know but I'm going to be a dad and I'm here to tell you I will if I have to come back if you'll let me out to work during the day I will sleep every night here in jail for the rest of my life if I have to if you'll just let me work and let me see my daughter be born wow so I just remember sitting back there going who is that and where is my son you know I mean he it was just it's just like it was a different person 
were you cautiously hopeful that this was real or oh yeah I mean I'm sure it's hard to be so super excited because you're afraid you're going to be let down or well and everybody by this time I had been in the drug court system I mean I knew it and everybody told me sure nobody gets three tries in drug court nobody and they gave him a chance yeah and even the judge said I can't believe I'm doing this you know and everybody in here has given me the look Really? You know, but yeah, he let him in and, and he went to jail for about six months. Um, but he was out for, um, his, the birth of his daughter, you know, and he finished drug court, which that in itself is a feat. Not, I, I can't even remember. I think back at that time and it might be, uh, you know, it was right around 28% that graduate. And actually finish really? drug court, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he did, and the judge spoke. That judge spoke at his graduation. Really? Yeah, it was really, it was really neat. So, uh, what is drug court? What does that mean? It is a program that the state has. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. Um, they have to do, uh, like, they have to test. You know, so many times you have a color, and anytime your your color is called, you have to go test. You have to go through classes, you know. Um, it's just kind of a, it's more like maybe an outpatient kind of, okay. but kind not. Of accountability? Thing? Yes, yeah. It sounds like it's just an accountability piece, but you still need the rehab, right? Yeah, it, it's not, yeah, that's what I mean. It's not rehab per se, um, but you do have to take some classes, counseling kind of. Um, and you have to test. He was probably testing two or three times a week, but he never made it. That's the thing. When he would get out and get put back in, you know, or admitted to even drug court, he never could have a clean. He, I don't, I don't know if he ever had any clean tests. Really? Yeah. You know, what's so fascinating to me, Sheridan is, you know, Christy asked you the rock bottom and I'm kind of going back just a little bit, but did he go to the funerals of those friends? Uh Uh-huh. And that didn't... No. That was not a wake-up call. Mm-mm. Sorry, I just was thinking about that. And I'm yeah. Like, and were they in the system? Were they trying to go to drug court? Mm-hmm. Well, they mm-hmm. were all in that system. Mm-hmm. Okay. So wow. when he was when he made the decision, he gets the judge to give him another chance. I, I can't imagine coming off heroin is... I mean, it, it's got to be one of the most difficult things to do. You have the withdrawals... <laughs> All of those things, which I know can kill a person in and of itself. Mm-hmm. How did he navigate that? We detoxed him seven times in the hospital, in the ER. Seven times. He detoxed one time in jail when he got caught. So I, I wasn't even there, but they picked him up and he had to detox in jail. And he told me, Mom, I will kill myself before I will ever detox in jail again. Wow. Oh, I bet it was brutal. It is. Like, I, I tried to do it a couple times at home, you know, because it was 3500 bucks pop every time just to detox. That doesn't, the, the, the rehabs won't even take them until they're detoxed. But yeah, you, and it, we all know you can't go back to the very environment, you know, so even yeah. if you, you detox him that many times, but he goes right back to the same people he's hanging out with, same right. situation. You can't. Yep. I mean, it's so hard when you think about it. it. It's 
no different. Well, it is different, but when you're talking about someone who's trying to quit alcohol um, and they've got their group of people that they're doing stuff with, and if you come out of a rehab, but you don't have any other friends, you and you think that you've got this, but then you're right back in, it's so easy to fall back in. Not that you're intentionally doing that, but you think you've got it. You're pretty empowered at that point because you've been sober for a period of time, 30 days, 60 days. So you feel this, I think, false sense of power that you've got it. And it's easy to fall back in because what else are you going to do? Who sit at home? Yeah. When you, and no social life, which that, you you know, right. Changing your, and that's a hard thing to do. It takes so Mm -hmm. much power. Well, and he didn't, know of any sober so-called friends you know what I mean yeah I mean that's all he ever knew from such a young age yeah you know it's like I I but at this point you know towards the end and he was an adult and you know gonna be a dad at at that point I don't think it was about friends at at that point but I just remember this was probably a year prior to this you know, my rock bottom, I remember just, you know, I got so tired of praying to God and, you know, please give me strength and make it through the flipping day. You know what I mean? I finally just said, you know what, God, I, I've done all I can do as a mom. I, I'm handing him back to you. Please do something or take him. Nobody was more miserable than him. And I, at that point, I was past my, you know, misery. Um, I, I couldn't stand seeing him suffer. Yeah. I, I begged God to take him. Wow. So yeah. tell, us, um, tell us where Kate is today. <laughs> he is... I almost feel guilty sometimes talking about it, you know, because I know I'm one of the very few lucky parents. You know, he's thriving. He just started his own business, you know, six months ago. And, um, but he's been working in that field, you know, for all through high school. Um, and th- that was another thing, too. When I told you he was a functioning addict, he went to work every day. You know, he was really a functioning addict until it got to where he, when he was living on the streets and that, yeah. clearly. But um, he's got two kids and is the best dad in the world and is uh, so happy and successful and healthy and um he still is um taking some um medication uh-huh uh, once in a while you know we've we've talked about that because it's been well he's been sober for yeah eight years eight and a half years now um because and especially in the early years i'm like dude do you ever you know the the urges you know do you yeah. do you get those and he's like i not like i used to you know once in a while i will um his body physically will not so much anymore but you know in the ongoing or the beginning stages um that's when he was using the naloxone or yeah. you know that but um he he just it really, it was just, it was a mindset for him. He just knew I, that was the one thing that would trump heroin was being a dad. Well, they've always said that 
you know, as much as everybody's fighting for a family member or whoever, they've got to get to a point where they want it for themselves. Yes. Interventions, I don't know how successful interventions really are because I think the, the addict has to get to that place. And some call it rock bottom, and I think that's not your story. It was yeah, him and being inspired and awakened. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a little bit ago what you would tell another parent. I want you to elaborate on that, you know, going back and thinking about what you've been through, how hard it was. What would you tell a parent that is living in that right now today and what they can do or can't do? And, and resolve to. I still, even though, you know, it was hard for me. I remember when that parent told me, you need, he needs to be in jail. And I remember being so upset and thinking, you're, you know, you're a jerk. You know, he doesn't belong in jail. Um, but that is exactly where he belonged for his sake and mine, really. And, and I don't want to say that's a start because it's not a start, but it's maybe... Because they are, you know, he, he, he will be sober for 30, 60 days, whatever it is, you know. Um, so he might have a clear head for a little bit. And maybe each time he gets a clear head that he can really think. I don't know when it was for him that it hit him that, oh, yeah, when I'm, I'm not going to be a dad like my dad was. You know, I, I don't know when that really when he knew, I, I don't know if it was just then when he found out he was going to be a dad. Yeah. Um, but I would uh, definitely uh, the the whole codependent thing. Um, and I know it's hard. It's so hard because you love your kids so much, and especially in the beginning, lots of denial. Oh yeah, that's you know that's not just like the addict is also in yeah. denial, just like. Cade never thought he would die. He never thought he would die. I, I, you know, and we talked about it several times, even during all this, you know, we knew that he shouldn't be alive. And, and I told him, there's a reason you're still here, dude. And, you know, let's figure that out because there's definitely a reason. It's not your time. What do you say to the mother that is afraid to talk about what she's dealing with? that's hiding it and is, and is ashamed. The best thing she can do is talk about it, especially with other parents that have been through it because they've been there. What she, I, I felt so much shame, especially when you know my, my little ones couldn't play or go over or their friends couldn't come to our house, you know, because we have an addict. Yeah. You know, um, if you, if you, can get through that codependency part of it as quick as you can. I know you have to go through that, you know, because I just think that's human nature. Um, but get through that period as as fast as you can and get to the part where you can really help. You might not be able to cure them, you know, but right. you can help, you know. And even through all of that, I was always, Kate and I always stayed close. You know, almost, still had deep conversations. Yeah. And, it's also, you know. it's being, I think, the hardest part is being brave enough to ask for help because you become so vulnerable when the minute you're, I need help, my child's going through this because you have to face it. 
And facing it is the hardest thing, I would think. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Off the bat. And I didn't really have any friends, so to speak, to talk to either. The one of his best friend, you know, he still is an addict, and they're still... Wow. In in contact? he, He lives with them still. He's 32, and still, they're still um, enabling, enabling him big time. That's, yeah. that, I just can't even imagine. At 32. Yeah. Wow. And he was the one that told me my son belonged in jail. Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, Sheridan, I think you should not feel guilty that you had a great outcome. I wish and hope more people will have a great outcome for their child or anybody they know because it's good to know there's hope. I think the biggest thing is there mm-hmm. is hope. People do survive. People do come out of it. Um, and I think it's it affects everybody. Did your whole family do, have counseling? Did you? How did you? How did you keep it together? <laughs> I don't know if I kept it together. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I went to a lot of um, um, what are the AA ones? What there's oh, yeah. Yeah. the parents of Gary didn't really was never really interested in any of that. Um, we we did see a, a counselor through the thing, just to keep our marriage together. Yeah, um, but he wasn't really a counselor of you know because really how do you counsel that with an addict? You know, yeah. trying you know it was just. It, really was just kind of a shit show and we just sometimes you just I don't know how to not make it through so that was never an option for me honestly yeah for sure yeah so and and I think that my kids are too I you know clearly Kate's a survivor too and you know I have my second daughter that went through a, a, a crack addiction um and not to say that it was easier for me but it I, I kind of knew what to do, you know? Yeah. And, yep, first thing I did was get her in jail as fast as I could. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that... That's got to be learned. hard. I, I mean, mean oh, can you I imagine sure being, you know, making that phone call or whatever that act looks like to put your child in jail? I mean, that's not an easy decision. You no. are sacrificing oh. so much mentally and... For sure. And, you know, it's one thing for your son to be in jail, but your daughter, that first time I had to go visit her. Oh. And she just cried and cried, and she said, I'm so sorry, Mom. I never thought I would be on this side of the glass. Did it save her? Yeah. It was kind of her Mm wake-up call. She now is. you, You wouldn't believe her. To have a conversation with her, she is just like. A different person. Mm hmm Really and that's what she's going out in. She wants to, oh, okay. you know, not a counselor. So there's, she says there's such a difference between counseling and uh, finding yourself. You know, yeah. to her, it's all, you know, she said, I, I had to learn to love myself before I could ever love anybody else. Good for her. You know, she's on a very spiritual, different spiritual level. You know, Kate is successful and so is Kenzie, but they're two different, completely different success stories. I love that. Well, we want to give you a big thank you for sharing your story, but we have started asking, uh, we have a little tradition, and especially this is poignant for you, 
Um, we're asking our guests um, if you could write a letter to your 20-year-old self after all you have been through, what would you say? Run like hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I know, it's a deep question. That is a deep question. What would you tell yourself? Survive. Do what you have to do to survive. But this too shall pass. You know, I so many times. Oh, wow. That is a deep question. I, just survive. I, I would survive. Because it's worth it. Yes. It's never not worth it. Yeah. It's never not worth it. You know, I had four other kids that I had to, and Kenzie, I felt like really slipped through the cracks through all of that, you know, um, but I, I would, you know, and Kate has taught and Kenzie has taught our younger, the twins, you know, a lot. Kate was very, very, um, just point blank with Trayson from a young age and said, you will be offered drugs. It, it's just like candy. And they're going to say, take this, it's not bad, my mom takes it all the time, or my dad takes it all the time, you know, you will, and the first time, you, do, you don't do it one time, no, you have to turn the other way, I mean, you have to say no, he was very, um, very, uh, no sugarcoating anything, he said, you, you, you do it once, you're hooked, That's good. always remember that, you That's know, good. so I, I, yeah, he, he did a lot more with the twins then you, you know when it comes to that arena that. yeah and they saw it you know they saw it firsthand from they were really young i mean really young you know and kids know what's going on they do you know yeah that was effective mm-hmm. well we want to thank you for sharing your story we know sometimes it's hard to share those deep secrets that we sometimes hold in our families but we appreciate you being vulnerable with us, and we are so glad that Kate is where he is today. Thank you. You guys both get to share your stories and help others. Thank you. Me too. Well, we want to thank Sheridan Cannon so much for her bravery and sharing her story and what the truth about it and what it looked like in living that hell of drug addiction and trying to keep it all together and trying to fight for your son, trying to fight for your family. Um, and the reality that kind of hit us. Well, when she talks about just not wanting to believe that that was happening, and it didn't matter what everyone was saying around you, you mm-hmm. want to believe the best and that that couldn't happen to you. And, you know, just the heartbreak that went along with watching her son go through that. And, you know, honestly, I could see myself doing the same thing. And, I just, you know, really want to honor what she's done and how much she um, did to, you know, manage her family, keep them together, because it, it can't not impact you as a couple um, and as a family unit. But they've done a beautiful job. Her son is doing amazing, and I know she couldn't be more proud. And so we're just so grateful that she came in to share her story with us. Yeah, and I want to. Another takeaway I got from that too is I want to encourage everybody. It's easy to shun people or the shame. We talked about the embarrassment of dealing with that and how other families say, "Don't play with those kids" or "Don't be around those kids." And 
again, another message is we've got to pull together and help people. And we need to be real. We need to be real. Talk about the shit that is happening in your home so that you can gain insight from other people that may have been down that road. And know you're not alone. So we appreciate Sheridan so much. And now we want to introduce you. Our second part of our podcast is Kathy Nay, who lost, unfortunately, her beautiful daughter Burgundy to an overdose. And her story is really rare and raw. And we hope that you will learn something or get a takeaway from this Um, and hopefully find support if you are dealing with this in your family. So we're going to dive in and talk with Kathy Nay. Hi, welcome to Pieces of a Woman podcast. Uh, Deanna here with Christy, uh, my podcast partner. We are here today with Kathy Nay. She's a kindergarten teacher, a mother, and she's married 12 years to Coleman Nay. And today, Kathy is going to share her story about parenting addiction and loss from addiction. Do I have that right? Yeah. So I think it would be good for us to just maybe start off with you sharing your story. Tell us about Burgundy and and even if you want to go back to early years and then maybe just kind of allow it to to grow into where you are today. So I I was a single mom and I had Burgundy when I was 21. And uh, she was a funny, cute, um, spontaneous daredevil, very smart. She did really well in school. She was, um, she loved animals. She loved activities, skiing, hiking, uh, mostly, I mean, her love was animals. Super smart, uh, and kind of, um, kind of naughty about it like she would go to school and she would correct her teachers and I would say there's a better way to do that you don't have to you know call mountain class but she she could just do math in her head and she would argue about why do I have to do it on a piece of paper when I can do it in my head just because they can't doesn't mean I have to and she just kind of had this little attitude about that because she just felt like it was dumb if she's efficient yeah it's like (laughs) yeah I can just write it why can't they just accept it Oh, my gosh. And so would kind of argue with her teachers. And I I don't know how she went from this, this kid living in, you know, just a regular suburban home. I had married um, my husband, and her and my husband had a great relationship. She had two stepbrothers, and my husband and I had a little girl, and she loved our little girl. She loved my husband. And there's no earmark or no tragedy that I can think of going back to think, how did she go from this kid living in just a typical household to shooting up heroin? But she did. I know um, when I look back, I can kind of piece little things together like, oh, she probably didn't have the best self-esteem. She wasn't um, as sure of herself as maybe we thought she was. She wanted the affection and the she wanted this older this older guy to think she was cool and I think that was her way of thinking she was cool because she didn't have the self-esteem to be like no I'm I'm cool I don't need to do what you're doing but she didn't and so she at a young age started dating an addict Mm -hmm. how old was she 
she was 17, almost 18. And she had to go back to school. She met him at a, a summer job and she didn't want to go back to school. So she ran away mm-hmm. and was with him. And we would kind of hear like little bits and pieces and then it was like, oh no, that didn't happen. Or, oh, I'm gonna move to Salt Lake and live with my grandma and go to school. And then that didn't happen. And really it was just her way of being able to stay with this boyfriend. I, I didn't really know much about drugs, so when she would tell me these things, I would ask her, and she would laugh about it one day, like, Mom, you're so dumb, I can't believe you, you believe that. And she liked to say things to shock me. You know, she would like to say things that were 100% not true, just to, just to see the look on my face. And yeah. then later be like, <laughs> that's funny that you believe that. So when she, when I was hearing that she was using drugs and, or when she was saying that she was, there was part of me that was thinking like, okay, when are you going to say gotcha? Because I didn't know what to really look for. Yeah, but now, and at this point, though, how old is she? And she was out of the house. So, so was she... she was probably like 19 to 20. Okay. So she was older. Yeah. I mean, and she was living on with her boyfriend and on her own by choice. Like she, she didn't want to go back to having rules or having someone tell her what to do. She was very much an independent kid and um, marched to the beat of her own drum. And so, even if living her living conditions weren't ideal to her, it was like this is good because I'm in charge of myself. She was on her own. So when, you know, when you're at 19, 20 years old, and as a parent, you feel somewhat limited, and um, you, you don't have the ability to really oversee or, or even talk them through making a change, because they're, they're out. They're kind of, mm-hmm. quotation, air quotation, adults. Um, so talk about how you started to learn did did you start to see signs that something was changing or was she pretty forthcoming with I had heard from people and um it was just all kind of room reveal like we would hear from people that the the boy that she was dating was doing drugs and she was doing them with her and what I would just call her and talk to her and she um sounded normal and then she came to Salt Lake, and she needed my husband to pick her up, her and her boyfriend, and I don't remember why, but he picked him up and brought him to a restaurant, and he texted me right away, and he's like, okay. Something's not right. She is on something, I promise you. Like, And I wasn't there, and I just kept saying, well, what? how do you know? What does she look like? What is she doing? Like, How is she behaving? What do her eyes look like? Does she... Yeah. And he, I think he was just so... Um, blown away that he he couldn't even really tell me he was just like well she's kind of just sleeping in the bench at this restaurant and she looks horrible and he just like if you went downtown and you saw someone laying on the streets that's her well and I think what's hard too is have you been exposed to drugs prior at all in your life or known anybody no no I mean um I had a half brother that used drugs but I didn't live with him I didn't know him yeah, because I, I think a lot of parents out there don't know if you haven't been around it or really seen it, you don't even know what 
what it looks like. I mean, I think you have a suspicion something's off, but I don't think it's just black and white. You don't just always know what's going on. And we also don't want to believe that. No, I think we go into a denial initially, or we make excuses um, in our mind. We tell our own story uh, so that we can deal with it, if Mm -hmm. that's the case. And I would watch this show on TV called Intervention, and I would think like, oh, well, she's not going to jail, or oh, she's she's not doing that. She's not, okay, she's good. Because I would compare her to every episode. And I think they record like, the worst of the episodes, or I'm sure you know some of it's staged. Yeah, and but so, you didn't have anything to reference no. to this initial place that she was at, except for this show, right? So after that, tell us how things kind of evolved from there and what that looked like for you guys as a family. So after we realized, like, okay, she's definitely using. We're not a hundred percent what she's using, but we had known that. Um, her boyfriend was a heroin addict and she had admitted to that we um, we distanced ourselves but still wanted her to know I loved her like I was apprehensive about her coming over to our house because I didn't know what she would come over like I didn't know if she would come over high or come over with her drugs or bring someone thinking like oh yeah they're just my friend and they're really and that friend's casing our house so I would meet her places and have this safe out like okay so if she has a meltdown I can just say love you and and leave yeah and so really that last year that's how we kind of met and and corresponded I you know she would ask me for like money or ask me I remember one time she asked if I would get her and her boyfriend a hotel room for the night because they didn't have anywhere to live and I said okay so that's one night what what's your plan for the next 364 days going forward I don't know I said I I can't pay for a hotel room for one night I can pay for you to go rehab I can help you go live with your dad I can help you do something to get off drugs but I can't I can't pay for one night like you're not helping yeah. yourself moving forward and she would always get mad and you know she she correlated that with if you're not going to give me what I need then you don't love me you're not going to help me you don't want to help me yeah was there anything that led up I mean did you see any kind of change in um, so did it just start happening as soon as she moved out and moved in with him she mm-hmm. started down that path did she distance herself from family and her siblings and well she had met him during a summer job okay and she was living at this place and so I was I wasn't seeing her on a daily basis I was oh, talking right. to her but okay. I didn't see her so I didn't see any physical change okay yeah whereas if they're under your roof you mm-hmm. you can see things and she was easier. living with her dad at the time and um, I don't know that he saw her on a yeah. daily basis because she was living at this place where she was having her summer job and then as soon as that summer job ended that's when we knew like okay because she ran away she threw her phone out the window so that no one could track her oh my gosh and i i knew in my heart like she's just waiting till she's 18 yeah and then she'll pop back up so i wasn't worried when she ran away because i knew she was smart and i knew that the only reason 
no one can get a hold of her is because she doesn't want us to. Yeah. I wasn't worried that, you know, she was taken by some sex trafficking corporation or that she had, you know, been kidnapped. I knew that she would pop up, and she did. So the day she turned 18, yeah, she called me. And I, I've heard that saying before. Um, actually, some of my son's friends, I, he had one friend who was a heroin addict. And um, in that saying, of, and my son said those words. Only people who are dumb don't know how to do it or mm-hmm. what to do. They, they take too much or they something happens. And those words were, so when you said that, it just kind of gave me chills because... I think every, all of them think they can handle it. Yeah, I would tell her all the time, I'm like, Burgundy, if you're really using, you're going down a path that leads two ways. You're going to be in jail, prison, or death. Yeah. You're not going to casually use this and have a happy life. So if you really love this person, then you need to get better. And he needs to get better. Mm. Because you're never going to have any kind of life being addicts. I mean, it just doesn't happen. I don't know one person that uses and goes to work and has a happy family. Yeah. And it destroys you. Mm-hmm. It destroys your your soul. I feel like it mm-hmm. just goes all through you. And <clears throat> as a parent, listening to how you, um, I think you loved with really healthy boundaries and. I think that's the hardest part is is really knowing when to have um, what they call tough love and and when to have healthy boundaries when you're when you're parenting an addict and I'm sure that that is just a hard balance to navigate. Um, so being able to say I'm loving you and I support you, but you had to have boundaries with whether she could be in your home and not trusting what that might come with if she came in high as you mentioned and I, I can't imagine that must just be so hard to know when is appropriate to have that and and I don't think anyone does and I and I think those boundaries are different for every family like I wish there was a book like okay if they're using this then you do these five boundaries if yeah. they're using this then you do these five it was just like trial and error like I I knew we needed to protect our little one. We had, you know, a baby, and we couldn't have that in our house. And it was hard to let, it was really hard to make her understand, like, I love you, and I will do anything to help you. But I can only finance things that are going to help you. Yeah. I, I can't finance these wishes that are not going to help you. Yeah. Was there any point that she felt like she was in trouble not to me not to you not no not to me and in fact right before she passed away um I even thought to myself like well shoot maybe I'm wrong like maybe she did kick this without any professional help because I had seen her a couple of times and she came over in March and made my husband and I dinner for our birthdays bought the food, came over, cooked it. We had a great time, hung out. Um, Her little sister was having so much fun, and my husband and I looked at each other, and we're like, wow, 
maybe she did it. Maybe she's not using. But this little, this little voice in the back of my head was like, it doesn't happen. They just don't. Yeah. But she looked so good and was acting so normal. And she had no signs that she was using anything. And that was March. And she died in June of that same year. Wow. So I don't know um, effects of heroin, and I don't know enough about um, what the signs are. Is it is it similar to meth where, you know, I know they say meth, you do it once, you're addicted. I don't know if that's the same with heroin or... That's what I hear. Okay. I hear from users that have um, recovered that it is the best feeling ever really? and nothing compares and so once they use it they kind of chase that first high I guess is like euphoric and they chase it I just want that yeah that first high again and I heard they never get it no yeah so I heard the too. chase continues which obviously creates oh. and they have to bump up you know I that this is all what I hear from past users like they don't get it, so they think, oh, maybe just a tiny bit more and I'll get it. Okay, yeah. just a tiny bit more. But as you know, when you're buying heroin off the street, you're not going to a yeah. FDA-regulated <laughs> uh, uh-huh. pharmacy that's like, okay, yeah. this is your, um, this is the amount that you can take by your age, your gender, and your height. It's You're buying this stuff from people that are making it in their basement that are probably oh. high, too, and putting in whatever they want and so when burgundy's autopsy came back she had heroin and fentanyl oh okay so whoever she bought it from had mixed it with fentanyl and i'd i called and asked um the coroner so what what actually killed her and he said there's no safe amount of either but if i had to guess it was probably the fentanyl in it really and I can ask what does that what did it cause to happen does it cause so the part that it does give me like a conflict is it is a very um peaceful death okay. your organs just slow down oh okay and your breathing slows down and you go to sleep too much okay mm-hmm. yeah. so I think it's a very um mm. peaceful death which I hope is true <laughs> because she um, I'm sure a lot of these times what you're saying is you don't know what you're buying. Mm-hmm. You don't know how the strength and, and what's happening when you take that. You're taking that risk. Oh, my gosh. But when you're 21, you're smarter than anyone else. You know what you're doing. This is, like you know, your path. You've got this figured out. And more than once she would tell me, because I would tell her all the time, you're going to die. You are going to die. And more than once she would say, uh, just dumb people do, Mom. It's the people that go to jail, and then they get out. I mean, she tells me this. And then when they get out, they go and buy exactly what they were taking before they went to jail, and that's what kills a Mom. Wow. But if you continually use, you're not going to die. I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was in that place of... Well, denial, too. You feel yeah. invincible. When you're that age anyway, you feel like you know more than anybody yeah. else. And, and I'm guessing she didn't hit rock bottom. Like, I would look at these things and I'm like, oh, that's the rock bottom. That's going to be it. They don't have anywhere to stay. Nope. 
Okay, that's rock bottom. They don't have yeah. running water in their trailer. Nope. Really? So all these things that she was going through being an addict, I thought would be rock bottom. For me, she hit rock bottom like many times. But I don't think she ever got to that point where she was like, wow, I am at the bottom and now I need help. Yeah. Because I'd always, every time she'd ask for something, I would say, well, I'll pay for rehab. And she just was not receiving of that. No, and she would get mad. And so finally, maybe the last six months, I just thought, if I want to have a relationship with her of any kind, I just can't say that. Yeah. I just can't say it because it would make her so mad. So we would talk about, you know, work, what we're doing. She always would call and ask about her little sister, but I couldn't say anything about, you know, getting help or yeah. getting better because it would just make her mad. Well, Kathy, you ex- you shared your what the story that you share, and where all do you share the story? Would, could you let our listeners know where you actually well, share have, your story? Well, I have, I met a lady through um, actually one of Christie's foundations, a mother's grieving group, and uh, Jamie works at a rehab center. Oh, okay. And she asked me if I would share it, and I was like, yes, because this, sharing her story Hills is very healing to me because I had no one to help me through this. I mm. I didn't know anyone that had an addict. I didn't have any friends that had addicted children. I didn't have a sibling that had an addicted child. And so I felt alone and yeah. kind of an outcast. And so um, when she asked me, I was like, yes. And then after I did it, she said, oh, my gosh, you couple people came back to me and they said your story touched them you know one kid called his mom and apologized and so I was like well I should reach out and ask other rehabs if they want me to because um it's so healing for me and if I can help one person or one mom one family then I feel like I'm giving a silver lining to a horrible thing that happened to us. Maybe someone yeah. else. Well, I think bringing awareness, and you said something earlier about so many things are stigmatized, and we put everything in a little box of, well, the only people that use drugs are homeless people, mm-hmm. or the only people that do weed are a certain group of people, and we don't want to see it. Right. And especially in our own children, you know, it's hard to see what is happening but it's it's very intelligent beautiful people um from all walks of life that can get caught up in this and I think that's the we need to be aware and wake up and know it can happen to anybody but you you know you have you know we're talking about burgundy at 19 um and there's stories out there of people that have lived in their 30s and 40s without any addiction and then become addicted to heroin and it yeah. changes their entire life path because mm-hmm. so it's not it's not um discriminative to age or yeah. the person whether with that comes from a beautiful perfect family that is together to someone that is homeless i mean mm-hmm. it, it's it doesn't discriminate and I think um, on my own personal experience with, which is so different, suicide, 
but one of the questions that I, I get asked quite often, and so I want to ask you what you know how this relates to your story. You know, what do I know now that I didn't know then? And I can look back, you know, with Taylor and looking where he was um, in his youth, and as you kind of alluded to, that there were little telling pieces that um, I probably didn't pay attention to because I just thought it was an adolescent child going through different behaviors that teens go through. Um, and I didn't pay attention to depression or anxiety, and I didn't give it the, the sensitivity that it deserved until I learned about where, until I experienced him taking his life. And then I spent four years of researching and looking at it and understanding it and having more compassion and sympathy for it. Um, so I always say, if I knew then what I know now, mm-hmm. doesn't save them, doesn't bring them back, but it helps me to talk to someone else. So what would you say to that? Um, the same thing. Like I feel like people get addicted because that's secondary to the real issue. And our society views mental health as not a real disease. It's getting better. But um, when Burgundy was 16, she was referred to a therapist. And my insurance would pay 12 visits a year. Oh, my gosh. A year. And I'm thinking, okay, so then what do I do after the first month? Yeah. Oh, you can pay out of pocket one hundred and forty dollars an hour. I was a single mom. Yeah. I I I couldn't do it, and so I look back now and I think mental health that is the root issue. Whether kids are depressed, lack of self esteem, anxiety, bipolar, anything, I think if we could hit those head on, they wouldn't yeah. go to something else that makes them feel better or another avenue and I that aha moment came when she died I knew we needed help and I called therapist after therapist oh we don't take your insurance okay I call another price oh yeah we take your insurance but you we can get you in um, on November 12th my daughter died in June I'm like so what do I do from June to to December like this is a crisis like we are falling apart here I call another place. Yeah. Oh, we don't take kids that young. I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So then I would call another place. Oh, yeah, we take kids. We do that. Oh, we don't take select health. We only take yeah. this. And I would just go down the phone book. And I thought, you know what? This is how people get addicted. They're going to go to their bathroom. and They're going to take something yeah. or drink it away because they can't get help. And I was like, my basic needs are met. I have a house. I have food. Yeah have a job so I'm not I'm not trying to to get my basic needs met and get help with some of this stuff so I think and then I thought that's it like some people can't even get their basic needs met much less what society views as a fake illness like oh just get better stop being sad or well don't act like that yeah I think we we are on the road to viewing mental health the way you know the way it should be and insurances are paying for more and realizing like hey if we do this preventative care we'll have a lot less people in the ER or we'll have a lot less people returning to the ER and that is almost how I got help like I was one day away from walking my family into the ER and saying someone needs to help us 
it's an unbelievable it's unbelievable when you think about it and you have something that tragic happen and and you really don't know where to turn and googling is a nightmare mm-hmm. yeah because, trying to find and right and and it's unfortunate so the, I guess the the next thing I'd want to ask is do you have um, a message that you can give the family that has a 19 year old and they've just realized that they may be dealing with someone that has an addiction um yeah like if they if you suspect it yes i think they are and what they're telling you is probably 10 percent of what they're doing and if you don't think oh i think they're doing better they're telling me don't. I mean, get them into counseling, get into family counseling, get into groups. You know, there is um, Al-Anon, there's Alcohol Anonymous. I, I would reach out to everyone. I wouldn't take what they say wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. I think they will admit to some things and they will tell you parts of truth, but they are not going to lay it out on the table. Well, I think that's it. And I I mean, we want to believe them and trust them, mm-hmm. but the addiction has such control, too, over them. But if they, they were to tell us the whole truth, I mean... And they, I think they feel like they're bad people, and there's a stigma, mm-hmm. like, as parents, like, oh, well, you must be a crappy parent if your child's an addict. And there's just this bad feeling about... And I'm sure not just in Utah, everywhere. Like, if you have a child that's addicted, then like, what did you guys do wrong? And that's not the case. And and I think talking about it more and being open and telling your neighbor, like, hey, I think my child's addicted, having everyone as a community look out for them instead of just keeping it hidden in your house and pretending it's not there isn't going to help your child or your community because maybe two doors down the street mm-hmm. your neighbor's husband is is battling the same thing and Kathy you just said something really powerful because as parents and I have seen this in our in my generation of parenting and we're probably close I probably way older than you but probably a little close but um, parents get in denial about a lot of things and I went through some challenges with my son and you would think you could rely on the community. This is where we need to do a better job as just human beings mm-hmm. because some things can happen. And parents will turn on the family when they need you the most. Mm-hmm. And when somebody's child is going through something, instead of criticizing and judging, um, we should be opening our arms and saying, how can we help? So I love that you bring that up because, and I think a lot of parents maybe don't ask for help because they are embarrassed and they don't want people to think badly of them but really we've got to protect these children yeah that's the mindset that I'd love to see change I would love to see where we as neighbors and humans could be like I'm so sorry what can I do yes how could I help what what can I do to make your day easier today or you're a good mom yeah because being a parent is you're living in fear you're exhausted you're living with guilt I would imagine I think you feel like it which mm-hmm. I don't know that you necessarily need to have that I don't think I'm not prescribing that but I think innately as mothers we take it on ourselves or as parents and so loving your loved one through addiction 
that's how do you do that and 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 where do you start to be able to love your loved one and separate the addiction from the I mean it's hard I I struggled with it and I think that is my biggest regret regret to like separate the addict and the addiction and just remembering like I can love the addict and just hate the addiction hate what she's doing and remembering like okay they're just a person this this addiction part is just um, it's like having a baby a two-year-old you, you love your two-year-old when they throw a temper tantrum yeah they're done and then you pick them up <laughs> but why can't we love that same two-year-old at 19 when their temper tantrum is you know they're yeah. going out and using well and and in fairness, if you've not went through that, we don't know what it feels like to have that desire to to, to need the next fix. When you mm-hmm. haven't lived it, just like depression, right? When you've not really suffered from it, it's harder to relate to it and know how to help. I think, um, and being educating ourselves more and taking the time to learn so that we can have more compassion and know that it is, as you said, an underlying issue, and they are self medicating. Um, and being able to separate that is hard, but if that if we can you know take away from this and and work towards that, um, yeah. we might be able to make a difference. And just being compassionate, like being compassionate to every homeless person, hungry person, neighbor, whether you think they need it or not. Yeah. Just showing compassion because you know maybe that smile or that, hey, how are you doing, is going to help. Yeah, to help them because you don't, you don't know what someone's going through or what happened to them in that day. Yeah, you can see what they're showing on the outside, and sometimes people show more on the outside than others. But yeah, just being compassionate to 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 everyone. Well, and your presentation that you use when you go talk to, um, and you've done some other podcasts prior, Mm -hmm. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story, first of all, and your daughter's beautiful, and I had seen her picture before um, on the billboard, Mm -hmm. Um, so I actually saw that, but you now are sponsor, I don't know how you're, how are, with the Naloxone? Naloxone. Naloxone. Um, Tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing with that so um utah naloxone was started by jennifer plum she's a a doctor here in utah at actually primary children's and she had a brother that had passed away from a heroin overdose and she just did all these amazing things to get naloxone into everyone's hands to um and if you give naloxone to someone that's overdosing it will reverse an overdose and right after my daughter died I had reached out to her because um, we had a common friend and she knew that her her brother had also died of a heroin overdose and so I just was asking her all these questions and you know is the death peaceful what what about this what about that and just kind of stayed connected with her and last year she contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to share Burgundy's story on their billboards and I was so honored. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like, when I sent her the picture and wrote a little story about it that they put on their website, and she was on nine billboards throughout the state this year. And that's bringing awareness to supply for everybody to have access to that, correct? Yes. Um, so. And that it saves lives. 
And I think the most important thing is that we're putting a face to it because I think when you talk about addiction, yeah. this many people are dying in this state and this many people are dying in this state, you're just kind of hearing these statistics and you're like, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. But when you put someone's face to it, your neighbor, like, oh my gosh, that was my neighbor's daughter or yeah. that is my school teacher's daughter. When you put a face to it and personalize it like that, I think it, it stops people in their tracks and think like, wow. Yeah. Because I'm sure, I know Utah, we have a high, we have a high everything, it seems like. (laughs) Alcohol use, drug use, uh, you name it. Um, And I think there are so many parents out there, regardless of the age of their children, that are dealing with this or don't know that they're dealing with, kind of to your question. Um, Is there, or do you know of any resources now where parents can go and get support? Or is it still there's in it? Kind of yeah, like while they're, they're in it, the like before, yeah. Well, I know there is a Facebook page, and it's called Tam, the Addict's Mother. Oh, okay. And they they offer a lot of um, resources and um, meetings and groups to help. And a lot of the moms in that group have had kids pass away, and have kids oh. that are currently using. And it's just a place for these parents to talk about like their child that's actively going through this or or parents that have had kids go through it and pass away but again um I didn't know about this until my daughter died yeah and Jennifer Plum was the one that told me about this group too and so I, I look back and I think wow I wish I wish I would have known about all these things yeah prior like would Naloxone have saved my daughter's life? Most likely not because she died alone. Mm. But she should have had it in her apartment. Yeah. And I mean, every household should have it. Yeah. No, um, a grandma or a mom that's had surgery and takes their medicine and forgets and takes it again can overdose. How do we get it? So how do how does just anybody get it? You can get them at. Uh, the libraries, the public libraries will oh, give them out. Okay. Pharmacies will give them out. You can contact uh, Utah Naloxone, the website. I mean, it is really everywhere. Oh, okay. Okay. But, you know, you make a good point, I think, for parents who maybe suspect that their kids are using mm-hmm. but don't know if they're living at home. I mean, definitely to have have that on hand. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And I, I know at first when... They had it like at libraries and some pharmacies. I know, and I don't know if this is how they do it now, but they would write your name down. And so some parents didn't want their name written down. So they would contact me. I had a couple contact me. And I think they didn't feel any embarrassment or any shame because my daughter died of it. Like, I'm not going to give you grief like oh your child's addicted well just a second let me get you something yeah they yeah. know that it's they can get it from me and and I'm, I'm not going to hold any judgment so this group on Facebook TAM mm-hmm. do you have to be um, invited into the group or can you, can you just ask, go find it you can and... find it and then you have to ask okay. to be okay. to join okay I think that's great for our uh, listeners if they're dealing with this it might be a good place for them to start. Yes, and they and in that group they they put up so many different things that people are doing. Yeah. Um, overdose awareness. 
that happens in August. Oh. August 31st every year is Overdose Awareness Day. I saw that, actually. Um, they they have all sorts of groups that I see on there. And sometimes, like so many of them, I'm like, oh, which one should I go to? Like, which one should I be listening to? But they do have a lot of information. Well, I think it's important because it's, you know, being a parent and not knowing where to turn. And if you're in the, the like, heat of it and you're just feeling so lost and out of control, having an out, outside perspective from people that are going through it might be able to help navigate that. So I think that that's, that's good information to share. And sometimes you're so overwhelmed you don't know that you even need help yet because yeah. you're just so overwhelmed by what's going on. And then you're like, oh, probably could have used some help there. Well, you have been through, um, as Christy has, such an incredible tragedy that, um, and such a, an unbelievable loss. Um, I have not experienced that, so I can't. But I, did, I just makes, it breaks my heart to hear. Um, what advice or what would you tell another parent out there? Um, you said some really interesting things in reading that. Um, one, having compassion, but what's one thing you think you could share, or is there anything that you feel like people who just could be listening to this and maybe need? Um, forgiving yourself. I, I would think, like, we're doing the best job we can, and it's not yeah. like we got this manual and we decided to throw it away because we could do it better. We get up every day, every mom gets up every day and does the best they can do. And they, they think, we think, like, okay, this is, this is the best. Like, this is what I want for my child. I'm going to do this and this. And then we look back and think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Like, maybe was that the reason why they were sad? Was that the reason why they ran away? Was that the reason why they took drugs? And so I think just forgiving ourselves as moms, like, we're doing a good job. Yeah. And... And don't don't let that second guessing ruin your today. We have we talked about having compassion for other people, but it's about having compassion for yourself too, and having mm-hmm. some grace. And um, I think that's and they wouldn't want us to carry that. And so, what you're doing, Kathy, is beautiful, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Burgundy is just beaming down on you sharing her story so that you can help save maybe one more life. Thank you for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. We want to thank Kathy Nay for being so brave as well and sharing her story about her beautiful daughter, Burgundy. Such a heartbreak, you know, when addiction turns into loss. Yeah. And, you know, Kathy has a very different story than Sheridan, um, but we want to honor both of them. I met Kathy through one of my bereaved mother retreats and immediately just fell in love with her personality and her mission to you know make sure that this never happens to another family and she's just doing amazing work and we just want to celebrate what she's doing so thank you Kathy for sharing your story we hope you enjoyed this episode please share if you know someone that can benefit from listening to this and don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast platform Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you think someone could benefit, please share. If there's a conversation you think we should be having or a topic that resonated with you, please let us know. 
You can engage and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Pieces of a Woman Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to us on Apple, leave us a five-star rating and a comment.